Welcome, everyone, to the Talking Reef Podcast. Questions and comments are always welcome. Please send them to podcast at talkingreef.com. And don't forget to visit our website at www.talkingreef.com. Now, here's the show. Welcome to the Talking Reef Podcast, the weekly talk show that brings you topics and discussions on marine and reef aquariums. I'm your host, Rob Weatherly. We have a special show coming for you this week. Uh, I'm joined by Brian Plankus of Project Dibs. Uh, project Dibs. Brian is uh, completing one of hopefully many classroom experience, uh, experiments. And uh, also joining me this week are a few of the students that participated in that classroom project, uh, their teacher and Eric Bornman. Brian, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to you for a little further introduction. Well, thanks, Rob. Uh, we're sitting here in, in the high school. We've got uh, a, a group of students that participated in this uh, semester-long experiment. And uh, today we just kind of wanted to share with you uh, how the experiment went and what they learned from it. And uh, we're also doing this as, as kind of a uh, podcast for the next group of experiment, uh, next group of students to uh, listen to so they get an idea of what's going to happen in the next experiment. And uh, we've got uh, Xander here and Debbie and Chuck and uh, Wesley. And we've got uh, the classroom teacher, Coach. And then we've got the, the well-known Eric Borman. Well-known. We know him? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he wrote a book, I think. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and start off with uh, the first section that we're going to go through is kind of going to be like a roundtable Q&A session. Uh, we've got uh, some questions for each one of the students. Uh, so I'm going to start with uh, the first question, which is for Chuck. Uh, Chuck, uh, from your point of view, what was the purpose of the research you conducted? Uh, the purpose of this project was um, to analyze and record data regarding the reproduction rates as well as the hatching rates of the columbellid snail. Um, not only did we keep track of reproduction and hatching times, but we also examined the different characteristics, such as temperature change, that could possibly affect the increase or decrease of these productions. Okay, cool. Uh, is there, Brian, do you have anything else you want to add to the overall purpose of the research? Yeah, I, I, it was um, the purpose of the research. There's a, there's a couple other things. Uh, one was just for for my purposes as a, as a doctoral student is looking at ways that we could get aquariums into the classroom and do some rigorous uh, science observations. In this, in this case, we just did observations. Uh, hopefully next time we'll be actually doing an experimental design. But uh, one, of, one of the reasons we did this was just to see, as Chuck said, um, you know, we wanted to look at the columbellid snails because really there's very little data out there on their reproduction. So we needed to get kind of a baseline uh, for these snails before we could even try to attempt some kind of experimental design. Okay, cool. Now, uh, the next question, um, we're going to shoot over to Debbie. Uh, what kind of things were required of you to accomplish this research? Um, we had to take different tests on the water in the tank, like the alkalinity, the hardness of the water, a uh, creation effect of the real ocean water, the pH of the tank. Um, it should have been around 7.6 to 8.4 the nitrate and nitrite test, they should be at zero. And how many egg masses were laid over the night or the weekend? We had to count them and like record them. And once they actually started laying eggs, we had to count that little egg dot in there and when they hatched. 
Okay, cool. Uh, Brian, is there anything else that you wanted to add on, on that topic there? Well, Debbie, we're going we're gonna to put you on the spot here. Um, <laughs> what, what, uh, what was the purpose of, of um, testing the, the ammonia nitrite and nitrate? Um, the ammonia would have killed the snail if it was like anything above like zero or one or something. So it had to, it always had to be at zero. And we always had to check and make sure that it was so like dangerous levels of ammonia wouldn't kill the snail. Okay, it's a pretty good answer. That um, we don't know the exact level of ammonia that would be toxic to these snails, but generally for aquariums, it's good to do. Well, ideally, you want it at zero. Um, right. But any yeah, once you start approaching about one part per million, uh, it can be it can be dangerous. Problematic. To, uh, problematic to the to the inhabitants. Gotcha. And, um, and we did see a large nitrate spike in tank four, and then we lost a couple snails shortly after that. So it's um, we, we don't know the the, per the the origin of the nitrate spike, but uh, we did have a couple mortalities there and. Uh, not necessarily related to the nitrate, but it's a possibility. But. Right, and, and one of the things I think you mentioned earlier that these were these were not control-based experiments, but just simple observational-based experiments. So, uh, mm -hmm. that accurate? Yes, it's um, there. So little has been done in, in in terms of collecting data in a controlled setting on these snails. That you know, we we basically didn't find anything uh, before this. Uh, research started, so we, we need to get uh, the the main one of the main purposes for the students this time is just getting baseline data so that we can understand uh, kind of what a baseline is and then design an experiment off of that. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, well let's move on to the next one. And, this and it looks like oh. uh, Eric wants to join in here. All right. Well, I, I would just add that uh, if you make the assumption that all other conditions were relatively equal between the tanks, and you suspect that nitrate may have had an adverse effect on the snail eggs, but it would be relatively easy to design an experiment with either zero nitrates or adding fixed volumes or fixed concentrations of nitrate to see if there actually, if that was, if there's actually a correlation, and that would be fairly easy to analyze using a chi square. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, that way we could have a little bit more concrete proof there. Okay, and, and we'll talk a little, bit, and we'll talk later on in the podcast about uh, one of the one of the things that the data did show us that could point to another experiment in the future. Yes, yes, exactly. All right. On that note, let's move on to the next question. This one is uh, for Xander. Um, what did you find out from the results of this experiment? We found out that generally takes about twenty five days for the eggs to hatch, give or take six days. Then we also found out that average, on average, each egg that they, the snails lay contains from two to three eggs. And you, you mentioned a variance on that 25 days. I didn't quite catch it. Can you uh, kind of run through that again? Uh, give or take six days. Six days was a variance? So yeah. you're so what so what you're finding is that when when these snails lay eggs, it's it's averaging about 25 days before they hatch. The eggs hatch. Yes, sir. Okay. All right. Was there any anything else interesting that you that you came across when uh, when doing this experiment? Or we didn't find this out, but eventually they stopped laying eggs for a while. Yeah, there's probably a lot of things that uh, that could have been happening, but uh, because of the way the 
the experiment was set up just being observational. We don't really have any direct proof as to what was causing any of this stuff. Well, um, Rob, I'll just add in that um, that they did they did look at the the average days of hatching being 25 days, but mm-hmm. um, we didn't have the uh, this research set up exactly to be able to, to to narrow that down. That's why he talked about the variance being six days because you know you've got the weekend where you can't observe yep. and um, you know, they do have other topics they need to be covering in their class, so uh, we can only only get uh, a couple days of observations a week. So that, um, but one thing that they uh, maybe Xander will want to talk about this a little bit um, was actually the, the um, average number of larvae per egg mass. And uh, Xander, was there any differences that we found? Well, we noticed that uh, sometimes there's like one egg, sometimes there's two, then every now, like sometimes there's three. And I mean, they all vary, just depending. You mean the difference between them is, is one or two or three between the different egg masses? Yes. Is this consistent within the one tank that you were working in, or was this data consistent within all the tanks? It's consistent with all the tanks. Okay, so from from all the different tanks, uh, I there was only a difference of one or two, uh, or what were you saying, about three uh, eggs between uh, the egg masses across the board. Were any of the tanks different? Yeah, um, Rob, the, the podcast team here, they, they were focused on the podcast. We have another group of students that are, are working on the, the Reef Keeping Magazine article that we're oh, okay. be, uh, publishing out of this. Uh-huh. And um, so th- those two teams were, were, were fairly separate. Oh, um, oh, okay. One of the things that the, the Reef Keeping Magazine team found was that the average across tanks was about 4.2 larvae per egg mass. Okay. Um, but in tank two, we actually found there were about 4.7. And so we were, we were looking at that, and we did, uh, we did some, uh, a t-test on that and, and found that that was statistically significant. So we had significantly higher number of larvae per egg mass in tank two. All right, now um, moving on a little bit, I think this is a, a question that we're going to kind of go around a little bit more. Um, but uh, what was it like uh, discussing things with the professional researchers and uh, addressing their questions? And uh, Brian, I'll let you kind of control who starts first on on this one. Okay, um, Xander, why don't you start off and and uh, say what you thought of doing the the research questions on the forum. In all honesty, I thought it was pretty interesting because we could bounce all these ideas off of the researchers and just see how things from their point of view. And just doing the research, we were able to see how things were affecting the world and how the oceans were really endangered. Hey, Chuck, what did, what did you think of the discussion forum uh, interacting with the experts? Um, I thought it was an overall good experience. Uh, hearing what they had to say compared to like our answers and their answers are obviously way more sophisticated and they knew a lot more about what they were saying than we did but um and they helped us out so it was really interesting and it was a good experience to learn how to look at things from their kind of point of view. Did you guys find that they had that they did a a good job bringing topics to a level that you could understand and not throwing out too much jargon that was over your head? Xander? Generally, yes, but we did have uh, a few problems with one of the research questions. The researcher really didn't give us 
as much a hint about what he was after. He just tells us basically that our answers were too general. Mm-hmm. He didn't say, like, direct us towards what he was wanting in an answer. Gotcha. And Rob, if I may comment on that, I, yeah. I think that uh, I think that did occur, and and that's uh, one of the things we learned from this experiment is we need to make sure that um, that I give instructions to the experts to make sure that we're scaffolding things. Right. Um, <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think the first podcast we did, we talked about scaffolding. Yep. yep. But uh, <laughs> it's um, so I think that would uh, definitely help the students the next time around. Gotcha. But, uh, Wesley, anything you wanted to add? Uh, again, I thought the change of perspective and the way we kind of looked at things through their eyes with the questions that they gave us and the help that they gave us was really good. And kind of just understanding the topic more, they helped us out a little bit. And it gave us time to research the questions on our own time, kind of find our own answers. Gotcha. Did it help sink yeah. in that there's there's more overlying um, facts and more more information than just a simple experiment that's going on here? There's a lot more to learn, huh? Debbie? Uh, I thought it was pretty interesting, like, the questions that they asked us, um, how we could, like, see what was, like, the coral reefs, like, going on around the world and the different types of um, ways that they were, like, going away. Right, and how this, how the information that you're getting here has a uh, relationship to what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> And I'll add something as, as one of the experts in the forum, and um, for at least in my point of view, um, I enjoyed interacting with students a great deal. Um, I think Brian had a distinct advantage in getting to know the students a lot more personally and, and understanding the level of the experiment and the level of the knowledge that was passed around the classroom. And for us acting remotely, it was a little more difficult to be able to generalize as to the level of discourse that we were able to participate in because certainly we didn't want to address topics that were far, far advanced of, uh, of an expected state of knowledge, nor did we want to um, treat students as if, as if they knew a lot less than they probably did. So, right. so that was a little difficult for us, and I think it more, more of an interaction with the students during the course of the, of the experiment would have been helpful for, for us in order to try to interact better with the students. Gotcha. So another takeaway for Brian there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, um, before I move on to the next question, was there anything else that we wanted to wrap up uh, or add in about the overall experience working with the forums or with the the uh, professional researchers? Yeah. Uh, Coach wants to chime in here. Okay. Uh, um, from my perspective, uh, one of the things that I would like to see, you know, the next time this takes place, whether it be in my classroom or another, is that the students actually take advantage of the experts, and not just that they're there as a resource, but actually do research on them as resources to find out what their research has been on so that we can understand where their questions are coming from. You know, why are they asking the questions they are? And I'm not sure how many of, of my students actually took the time or the initiative to look up their names do their Google Scholar search or do whichever, whatever they need to to find out who these people are and what they're offering them as student researchers. And I think that would be a huge asset uh, to them as, as students in the classroom who are trying to answer and address these questions is to find out who these, these experts are and what they have done and what they have contributed 
so that they have an understanding of these people trying to get an understanding of what they're doing in the classroom. No, that's a good point because one of the common things that, uh, and even I remember because high school wasn't that long ago, uh, but you always get that question of, you know, why am I doing this? Why does this matter? And, you know, understanding the researchers, what they're doing and uh, so forth, would I, I think that's a good idea. It would help give the students that are participating in these projects a good understanding of why this is important and why it, it needs to be researched by by people and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think that's a good point. Okay. Um, yeah, why don't we move on to the next uh, to 5B there then? No, that sounds good. Okay, so uh, the next thing we wanted to cover is the kind of things that uh, each one of the people learned from uh, from the various questions. Uh, so the first one I want to ask is uh, is to Xander. And what were the things that you learned from each one of the questions, from each question? Yeah, and Xander, if you can just talk about the, the Philippines coral reefs. Oh, yeah, yeah. What we noticed most about uh, the Philippines coral reef observations, the whole discussion was on uh, observations of the Philippines coral reef with Mr. Charles Ray. And the big thing that he had us talk about was that the biggest thing <clears> we can do about protecting the coral reefs is just educating people about them and how important they are. And the thing is, especially in the Philippines, that when they overfish and they use blast fishing, they use cyanide fishing, and they get more than they need, the reason they do that is because they're so poor that they have to do that to keep their family alive. And like, big thing with the Philippines is since there's so many islands and the government can't take care of all those islands to protect all the coral reefs like they could, but just each, each island has its own like, little tight-knit community. You don't want to see the people in that community talking to the, the government and ratting out people that are doing this stuff that are messing with the coral reefs, even if the government did have in place something like that. And, I mean, the biggest thing is that Charles really just uh, got us to lean towards the education aspect to it. I mean, the only thing that can really be preventing uh, destruction of the coral is just educating people about how important they are. Yeah, I, yep. I think uh, I could just add a, a bit there. I think Xander did a very good job there summing up uh, what Charles was saying in that. Um, and, and at least in the Philippines, and this probably applies elsewhere, that the, the local community has to be the one that's protecting the reef. And um, you've got to educate the people that if they protect their reef and they manage it, then they can actually get a lot of resources out of it. But if they simply it. throw a, a piece of dynamite in the water and blow it up, then they're not going to get any more fish from that, that area. Um, and maybe... Uh, you want to jump in here, Eric? Or dynamite fishing? Yeah. Well, dynamite fishing has become such a widespread phenomenon throughout Southeast Asia and some some islands in the Pacific, and it, it really is a it's a it's a devastating uh, fishing technique. And I would I would argue that it's far more devastating than poison fishing, um, mostly because the the accuracy of the bombs is very poor, and so if the fuse is cut too long, the dynamite doesn't. Expand in the midwater killing not only the target fish but uh, a lot of incidental kill but it falls down in reef substrate and just blows craters in the reef 
and that becomes an area of rubble that is unconsolidated and just rolls around it and it's never able to cement each other. So the recovery is on a decadal scale and, and the, the bomb crater is um, you know, many tens of meters wide and, it, and it's to, to experience a bomb underwater is scary enough, but then when you see the literally hundreds or thousands of bycatch fish floating by on the surface of the ocean, I mean, it's very depressing. And when right, you yeah. the widespread nature of this, uh, you know, that's, that's certainly an area that I really think needs to be addressed, especially in terms of sustainable use of the resource by the village people. Yeah. Now, Brian, I'm gonna. I want to interject with something real quick here, um, and I think there's a couple pieces of of information that we want to tie together for the listeners of this. Um, these questions that are being addressed, uh, that were just addressed, and we've got a couple more. Um, how did these relate to the the actual projects that were going on? Is this a separate list of research questions that was done separate from the tank projects? Uh, how how does this all tie together for them? Yeah. But, um... The, the research questions were, were a little bit separate from the project, but the idea of the research questions was to give the students exposure to the overall context of why an experiment, why breeding, uh, breeding in captivity is important. And, and so if they understand that the Philippines coral reefs and then Eric's question on coral reef decline and uh, talking about the um, talking about being reef safe and um, talking about the difficulty of breeding invertebrates. Those are all related to the classroom experiment and we wanted to try to give the students an understanding of this is the larger picture and this is where your experiment is embedded. So you, then you, hopefully the students get an idea that what they're looking at is just a small part but it's an important part. Okay, good. Now, and that helps you tie it together because I, I wasn't sure how where the divide was between, you know, the actual tank experiments or observational experiments and uh, these research questions. So that does help tie it together. So, um, if there's nothing else to add on the Philippine coral reef topic, you want to move on to the next one? Yeah, let's move on to the coral okay. reef. Okay, so the, yeah, the next one is for Debbie. And uh, Debbie, you want to take a minute and talk about uh, what you found out about coral reef decline? Um, well, there are many factors contributing to the decline of coral reefs worldwide. Uh, one of them is cyanide fishing that we were just talking about. Uh, overfishing also, the overharvesting of many fish in the coral reefs is um, depleting many ecosystems of like entire like chains and stuff. And the coral bleaching. Coral what? Um, global warming. Mm -hmm. And um, also pollution. The sediment in the water settles over the coral and they can't get any more sunlight mm -hmm. and they die. Runoff from the land and stuff. Yep, and also um, storms like hurricanes, mm -hmm. they can destroy like entire reefs. And um, other stuff that I found whenever I was researching this online, I went to a website, the Earth Observatory from NASA. Twenty-seven mm -hmm. percent of the monitored reef formations have been lost around the world, and as much as thirty-two percent are at risk of being lost in the next thirty-two years. Pretty scary, huh? Yep. <laughs> Was there anything to add on the coral reef decline before we move on to the next one? Eric, did you want to? Well, yeah, I think that I think that's a, a good brief overview. Um, the the threats that affect the coral reefs are so diverse that some of them are more local and regional in scale, others are global in scale. Right. Um, and one of one of the major issues is is the scope of it is so great, and so many of the stressors are so synergistic that it becomes almost impossible to sort of point fingers at any one 
community and say, do this and your roof will be saved because, because of these synergistic influences. So um, the future is, is unfortunately quite grim for a lot, of, a lot of reefs, especially in developed nations, especially infringing reefs. And right now, um, some scientists are operating under sort of a, of a triage theory where um, the main focus of coral reef conservation should be in those areas where reefs are remote and isolated and in relatively good condition and making sure that those are carefully protected so that they could possibly act as refugiums um, for, for reseeding reefs if and when humankind decides that they want to start being stewards of their environment and reefs become amenable again to uh, resettlement and regrowth. Gotcha. All right, now uh, let's move on to the next question. Uh, this one is for Chuck, and uh, you did some research on the obsoleta snails. Yeah, um, <laughs> Ron, sorry for not telling you earlier, but um, Chuck's going to actually talk a little bit more about the columbellid snail uh, that we uh, did in the okay. experiment. Okay, and, cool. Uh, so, well, let's talk about that one instead. Yeah. Uh, well, first, I'll start by talking about reef safe. And uh, reef safe is referring to whether or not the invertebrate is capable of harming coral as well as its um, surrounding ecosystem, the fish around it. It is, um, or whether or not it will harm or hurt other species. And um, the columbellid snail, the snail we researched and studied upon, is considered a reef-based species because um, when it's in the water, it is not harm its surrounding coral ecosystem or um, other species around it. And it, um, when it's taken out of its um, environment and placed in a tank, it would be able to survive under the right conditions. And if other species were to be placed in it, in the tank with it, it would not do them any harm. So basically, we found that it's a it's a snail that we can take into our tanks um, or can be moved from various environments. Not going to hurt anything else. Um, uh, yeah. All right, cool. Uh, is there anything else that we want to add on to that, or we want to move on to the next one? No, I think I think we can move on from from that one. Okay, cool. Thanks, Was there any? Well, you know, let me throw this in there real quick. If we've got uh, if we got the time for you, Brian, uh, is there a reason why you chose this one specifically? I don't know if we've uh, we've talked about that for the experiment. Uh, actually, we, uh, we we chose the columbella because it, it it was known to be a uh, a very fecundant snail. Um, lays quite a number of egg masses, but no one had really ever done any kind of quantifying on that. And so we had no idea how many we were going to get. And mm -hmm. it turns out that uh, we got quite a few. There was a couple of tanks where it was over 300 egg masses that we observed. And, and keep in mind, these egg masses are pretty small. So there may have been even more than that that right. we couldn't pick out, uh, in, even in a small tank. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then of course, we knew that this snail was, was an algae and diatoms grazer, or is at least assumed to be. Right. And uh, all, all we had to do was supply a light source so that it, that it had algae films to graze on. And so it should be a very easy to maintain snail. And, and um, other than the couple that we lost during that nitrate spike, uh, all of them did very well in the tank. So, you know, it was, it was a smaller snail, which uh, is maybe not quite as interesting as some of the larger snails or other yeah. other species but it's something that was very easy to maintain so that we could get good data out of it okay and now uh we're, we'll move on to wesley all right all right wesley you're going to talk about the threat of invasive species yes um 
in the thread we were required to uh, define what invasive species is and give some examples of one. And I went through and looked at all the different students' answers, and the one that the educators liked best was was a species which invades and has a capacity to establish and increase their population size in a new biogeographic region. And they accomplished that by preying on the natives and wiping them out. Did, um, and I don't, I, I wasn't sure if you said it. Did you research a specific species, or was it just the the concept of invasive species in general? It was basically just a concept. Some examples that we found were barnacles, green mussels, water fleas, and Asian tiger shrimp. Gotcha. Okay, cool. All right. Now, to to move on to the last one, this is kind of a group question here, and it's kind of talking about the what you guys found as a difficulty in breeding marine invertebrates in general. Uh, Brian, you want to kind of pass that around for everybody? Yeah, it looks like uh, Xander wants to uh, start off here. Okay. Now, earlier I mentioned that we had difficulty with one of the research questions. Well, uh, this is specifically that one. Like, we really he just told us when they were making generalizations. And, like, some people would post that, that uh, like, they have, most snails have short lifespans, or that marine birds have short lifespans, and that they're just like they have really specific conditions that they need to be in. And he kept telling us that we just had just general or generalizing it, that we did have the right answer. And he really wasn't pointing us towards what he was looking for. Anybody else want to add on that? Okay. Um, yeah, I think uh, this one was uh, one of the threads that, that was. Uh, we, we needed a little more guidance, and, and but the the idea of, of this thread was to talk about uh, some of the trying to find out what conditions and uh, what factors can affect breeding of marine invertebrates in captivity, and um, we didn't we didn't uh, clearly get that uh, addressed, but it's something we'll try next time, and uh, but the idea was to um, talk about you need to know what species you want to breed and so you need to research that species and find out what conditions and what uh, you know water quality conditions temperature what kind of food you have to provide and that's where we were trying to go with this gotcha okay and I, I can imagine that's probably pretty hard because a lot of this stuff uh, especially for marine invertebrates it's it's already unknown uh, so that probably made that a little bit difficult all right. Um, okay, so let's move on to uh, the next one here. And this is going to be a little bit more of a an open, uh, you know, not free for all, but free question for everybody. Um, is I'd like to see what you guys all felt about the project as a whole. Um, I'm looking for you know good, honest answers here. Uh, so you know, if you found it beneficial and stuff that you learned, or if there's stuff that you think that you might even uh, take past this or or anything. So if you want to, let's kind of go around and, and get everybody's thoughts on uh, on what they felt about the project. Okay, it looks like Xander's gonna okay. start. Well, on a whole, this experiment I thought was pretty good, but I'm gonna be completely honest here. As high school students, and keep in mind that most of our class is made up of seniors. Right. Uh, honestly, we're all falling to senioritis, and we're all starting. 
<laughs> we're, we're, we're getting out of it, basically. And I think the big thing that I think most of us, most people in my class like fell prey to was that a lot of them lost interest. And I thought that made it just been because, in all honesty, watching snails is not exactly the, what most people would consider exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I mean, the experiment, the concept I think is really good, great. It just could have been done in a different, with a different species, just to increase entertainment value. Okay, so what basically what you're saying is you thought the ideas and the concepts that were trying to be put across were, were good. However, the specific species um, kind of lacked in any in a specific in, sort of interest, and it was it was probably causing the students to to lose focus on what was going on. Yeah, and like the other day we went to Moody Gardens for a field trip. I noticed that they were breeding like seahorses there, and I thought something like that might be like more interesting for the future generations. Or something like else wise. Anybody else wanted to add anything? Debbie here? Yeah. Um, I thought it was pretty interesting, um, doing like scientific um doing scientific experiments. Um, like being a part of uh, the experiment itself was really interesting because you got to see like what the research experiment was like or the process of it. And um like being on a podcast team is pretty cool, hmm. and the Reefkeeping magazine is also pretty cool. Um, but just like being a part of a, a scientific experiment was like a really good experience for me. I thought. Cool. Okay, Chuck. Um, all right, I'm gonna say something about the discussion forums real quick before I talk about the um, before the tanking and everything. Um, I thought that the discussion forums were good, and it was really nice to. Uh, what scientists are thinking about, and um, although it must have been hard for them to ask the right questions, I believe the questions weren't were difficult, but not too difficult to look up and research. And, and I think if, if it would have been any easier, it would have been too easy. And um, as a, as the tank research goes, um, I was going to say that it was really interesting. And although snails are not interesting or whatever, but um, it has to be done by somebody, and I'm glad that I was able to take part in this experience overall. Good, awesome. <clears throat> All right. Um, yeah, why don't we Why don't we move on to the the next question then, Rob? Okay. Uh, this is going to be uh, kind of along the same lines, and I'm going to give each of you a chance to. Uh, you know, as Brian mentioned, this this podcast is going to be played for uh, you know future students that participate in the project. So uh, let's go around, and I'd like to hear your thoughts and and what you would like to pass on to them uh, as as they embark on on their projects. Yeah, let's, for for the students, let's just uh, do just like one piece of advice that you think you learned from this that would help students as they're just getting into the next experiment. So Wesley. Well, I think that the students need to kind of be aware of what they're getting themselves into from the get-go and make sure that they pay attention so they don't get confused because you have to pay pretty precise attention the entire time, otherwise they'll get pretty lost. Always good advice. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Debbie? Um, uh, I'd say to pay attention to the, the threats and the research questions because I know I was kind of slacking off in the beginning and... Later on, I tried to post and like get my 
like uh, you heard, it was just kind of like a little hard because you had to read through the whole thread to understand what, was, what they were talking about, and that was a little difficult at times because it was like five and six pages long. Yeah, trying to keep up with those threads can be can be yeah. challenging at times. <laughs> hey, Chuck, um, I would say that um, when you get into it, make sure you get into it and actually do it because um, if you're not taking accurate um, research and data, it can mess up the whole experiment, which would not be good for anybody. Okay, and Xander? Um, in respect to the uh, threads, before posting, I think the major thing that most people need to do is just read the other posts to make sure you're not repeating stuff. So if it said, I'm not going to lie, I saw that way too much. <laughs> and I'll just add uh, that that seems to be prevalent not just in this forum, but in most forums. But uh, if I could count the number of times I've answered the same question over the past 17 years, um, I would probably leave the help myself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tell me yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, so let's move on, Rob. Um, go to the next one. Okay, so the next one we want to talk to uh, the teacher, Coach. Uh, what did you think uh, was the most valuable lesson learned from this experiment from your perspective as a teacher? Uh, being this as a, as a first run for the school, for the district, uh, for myself as a teacher, being new to, to teaching, to the discipline, you know, the importance of having an established calendar, having uh, a set number of goals, Having a, I want to again say this, say a calendar. You know, having students accountable for particular jobs. Uh, this this run, we were very vague in kind of saying, oh, we're going to do some research. We're going to break it into groups. Here's what you need to do. Go. Mm -hmm. And um, with that, you know, I think in, at, at the grad level, graduate student level, you can. Where there's self motivation, there's there's intrinsic need and want and desire. Right. To, do that. They've chosen to be there. Or in this case, you know, high school, they have seven subjects. Uh, I, I get them for 50 minutes a day, and they didn't necessarily choose to study the snail. So with that being said, the need to establish uh, particular jobs, specific jobs, jobs that need to be done on a specific date, uh, rubrics that are going to inform them exactly how they're going to be graded, what their expectations are, when the expectations are due, it is so important. And both Brian and I kind of rolled over those obstacles time and time and time again when people weren't counting, uh, students weren't counting their egg masses, or the tests weren't getting done on the dates that uh, were being provided, or the tests were inconsistent and they weren't being run a second time. Uh, just having the students have in front of them, their specific task. So it sounds like what you're saying is is, uh, is tightening up the framework would be more beneficial, having a little bit more defined requirements along with a tighter framework? Absolutely. Gotcha. And I think some of the student frustration, you know, they can say that the snail itself isn't uh, the most interesting of creatures. Uh, I, I would also counter that by saying that research is more interesting if it's structured. You know, if you just go out and try, you know, research isn't always about swimming with the orcas and playing with dolphins right. and swimming in coral reefs, and that, that's not the reality of what uh, marine biologists do. Exactly. That's not, that's not what we need to be blinding them with. This is real science. 
and there's number crunching and there's long hours and it's it's not always fun and games and although it might burst their bubble of research reality that is how it is yep and that's the way it is <laughs> that is exactly right so i think the snail is a good research tool uh because of its, its viability it's, it's easy to culture and the data is there's a lot that can be done uh, some of we talked about fewer. I mean, that's very expensive. That's very unrealistic for a high school setting, right. public high school setting. Um, but there are probably maybe something that is more uh, a creature invertebrate that is more interesting, that is still feasible for the public school setting and the public school financial yep. framework. Yep. So there you go, so, Brian. Oh, some no, more to do's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. No, it's, um, we we have a num a number of other species that we're considering. Good. Um, but we need to get a little bit more data on them through project divs before we can consider them for a high school experiment because there's just so much that's just unknown about pretty much the vast majority of marine invertebrates in general. Um, very few of them have been studied and uh, in, in any kind of of depth. Yeah, and you know, and if I may, uh, and we'll just we'll give this question to just one of the students, um, and, and Brian, I'll let you pick which one which takes it. But uh, you know, one of the things that I, when when working with Brian in the beginning on this project that I found so interesting was the fact that this is research that has not been done by somebody before. This is new research. You're not working a totally pre-planned, uh, you know, schedule and uh, you know curriculum here. I mean, it's there, there's a lot of you know planning and, and framework in it, but the research that's being done is totally new. And uh, how did that uh, affect the, the students in there? I mean, was that interesting? Was it, you know, not that big of a deal? Because I, th I found that it was pretty interesting, uh, pretty cool thing. Looks like Xander wants to answer that one. Um, for that matter, I'd say that if some of, some of us were actually affected by that, the fact that it's all great, like groundbreaking research and such, but I mean, like I mentioned before, a lot of the students in our class are following a senioritis. And yeah. I mean, they really are just doing enough to just to get by. But I mean, in general, like it was interesting that we were doing new research and that our research was going to be there for future generations and the uh, uh, raising of these snails and keeping them alive. And, and all in all, it was just a very like, uh, it was really affecting me and myself. Generally. So it did have a, a good positive impact on you. It sounds like you know, as you mentioned, there's some things that you that uh, to change, but at an overall level, you think it was a, a good positive experience for you. Yeah. Sounds like Chuck wants to add something too here. Okay, good. Uh, I was just gonna say, um, senior or not, this is unless. Some of us are considering really going to like marine biology. It's like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and I thought that it was a really good opportunity to do this. It was a fun and interesting project, although boring at times. I thought it was um, really good experience. Yeah, and you know what? And that's it's pretty much. I guess the good thing is it gets the, you guys um, introduced to this type of stuff, and it maybe you know spark you to want to do or maybe show you that you don't want to do and uh but it sounds like there's a lot of good skills that uh that could have been learned from it so um 
Uh, if there's unless anybody else wants to jump in there, I think in the sake of time, we'll move on to the next question here. I, I think Eric wants to jump in real quick. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, just in, in light of what Chuck just said, um, he, he hit the nail on the head because a lot of marine research is like this, and I'll, I'll just use a, a short anecdote. Um, we were doing transect surveys in Sulawesi, um, and we would go down and work, you know, eight to ten hours a day diving with pad and paper at pretty great depth, recording corals um, on notepad and paper, and then at the end, at the end of a dive, we'd come up and have lunch on this beautiful, idyllic, isolated tropical island with, with palm trees and these beautiful coral reefs all around us. And then at night, we would go and crunch numbers into our computer for another four to six hours. So any type of science, if, if you pick a, a field of science that interests you, um, it's still science. And so there's a, there's a great benefit to marine science in that you do get to uh, work with some very interesting organisms and possibly visit some very, very beautiful places. But at the same time, it is a great deal of work. There's a lot of a lot of science and a lot of math involved, and so you know you have to take the good with the bad. And overall, hopefully, it's, it's a vocation that it appeals to you. Yes, yes, very good points. Uh, and now moving on, Eric, uh, the next question is kind of directed for you. Uh, is how do you think the students did interacting with you and the other uh, researcher experts? Uh, and could you offer some advice to the next group of students that are going to be listening to the podcast on how to you know over, improve their overall interaction with you guys? Well. Each of us had our own separate forum, and uh, we had a major question that needed to be answered. And as most threads do, they sort of tangent off to other topics, which right. may or may not be interesting to some of the students, and sort of the main focus of a single thread tends to get lost. Um, I think this might benefit from having subforums or, or students asking specific questions within each forum, sort of like a more traditional message board where we, where we have multiple topics going on and the students that are interested in certain topics or maybe students themselves could bring up topics that interest them um, and sort of uh, delineate these different topics and uh, encourage uh, a more organized type of, of discourse. Um, and I guess another thing, personally, what I found was that if, if I had asked a question or if a student had asked a question, there was generally a one response. Uh, answer, and I would like to encourage more, more of a back and forth sort of discussion to try to get more interest. And one of the things that I thought on, on my way over here was that something like an internet relay chat might sort of facilitate that sort of back and forth discussion that uh, encourages new topics to be brought up and more interaction between the experts and all the students, and we all sort of get to know each other a little bit better and find out what people's different interests are. Good, yes, and I, I, I agree. Maybe going with a uh, given each expert uh, or topic a, a, a form instead of a single thread might uh, might help uh, raise up some more discussion in there. So, all sure. right. Um, and the last thing that we're gonna we're gonna talk about, unless somebody wants to jump in real quick. Oh, uh, Xander wants to jump in real quick. Okay. What Mr. Uh, Bornman said about uh, how the research questions were set up, how how each one had a different researcher. One thing I noticed is that some research questions were answered more than others, and that I think that sometimes people were more interested in one researcher than another. Uh, I especially noticed that with the Philippines Coral Reef Forum, and I noticed that most people posted there than others other places because I'm really not sure why. Personally, myself, I posted the most in that one. Now, did you did you think that it was the the researcher or the expert that was providing 
I don't want to say a better, but a more well-rounded answer, or did you find that it just that the students seem to have a higher interest in that topic? Um, I'd say that students have a higher interest in that topic. Okay. Like, personally, I was really interested in that discussion because I found it interesting not to be talking to that researcher in that, that subject specifically because really, it, I think it really does hit where coral reefs are being attacked. Right. Like, and it just really affected, really affected my perspective on the whole thing. Gotcha. Very good. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah. Okay. All right. And last but not least, I guess we'll, I guess we can give you a question, Brian, since <laughs> this is all your thing here. And now uh, what I'd like to hear is uh, your final thoughts on, uh, on, on everything that happened here on your research, anything you want to add to the, to the topics or the discussions that we've had already? Yeah. Um, I, I think as, as a first run, I, I think this went pretty well, actually. Um, and, and I think uh, Coach and I, we learned quite a bit that we can improve on next time, especially getting the task to be more structured for the students to, to, um, so that we can keep them up on the assigned tasks. And, and that way we're not rushing at the end to get everything completed. And um, I think that we asked quite a bit of the students. I, th I think this is um, not very common in the high school setting to do a, an experiment that's this long. And, um, you know, I, I, I was probably a little uh, tough on the students, but I, I think that by raising the bar, uh, we try to get a valuable lesson on the nature of scientific research and that um, we're trying to get some data out there that can that is of interest to a wider audience, such as, uh, you know, your podcast audience or the Reef Keeping Magazine um, team, and just kind of a demonstration of, of what it takes to set up a, a controlled research. And in this case, it was just an observation, but um, I think that there's a lot that we can improve on, but I, I think the students did a, a very good job with, with what we gave them. Gotcha. Yeah. And it sounds like you learned a lot about, uh, you know, new ways to apply this, uh, you know, going forward. And uh, I, I think it's, you know, I don't know if you conveyed it to the students, but uh you know, I, it's, I think it's great that they participated in this and it's understanding that um, while they're learning a lot of these key concepts, uh, you know, Brian and, and his team here are also learning a lot about, you know, the proper and the good ways of, of performing these, this type of work and these type of projects with the students, too. So everybody's learning everywhere. So it's uh, it's overall a good thing. Yeah, I, I learned quite a bit that we're not putting in this podcast, but um and I, I should mention that um, if there are any, uh, you know, high school classroom teachers that are uh, that are listening to this and they're interested in participating in a future experiment, they should uh, try to contact me on the on uh, uh, Project Dibs website uh, or send me an email. And uh, Rob, you can put that in the, the show notes. Yep, sure will. So, and I just want to thank the students for their efforts. And uh, that's all I have. Is anybody else want to? Add anything? Xander wants to add. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, I know. I'm the one adding. But uh, in all honesty, I didn't even know this research project was going to be done when I uh, signed up for coach's class. I just, since this is my last year here, honestly, I just wanted to get an easy class, and I just wanted to get out. And I 
had had coach before and uh, enjoyed his class, so I just wanted to happen again. But since uh, we did this research, I really, I really felt that this was a great experience, all in all, because I mean, how many people can say that while they were in high school, they did groundbreaking research on anything? Right. Yeah. And, no, that's a good point. I mean, just being able to carry that with me. Like when I go off to college or wherever I go in the future, is like it really affects my uh, thought process and how I feel about it. All in all, I felt that this experience, although it had its flaws and its ways that can be improved, it still was a great experiment, and I was really glad to be a part of it. I, I and Rob, I need to I need to jump in here because uh, I think Xander brought up a very good point: is that yeah, even though it had its flaws, I, I I like that about him saying that because that's what research is all about. Oh yeah, is you, you do research and you realize the flaws, and that leads to the next experiment being better because you discovered those flaws. Yeah, and, and so I, I think that's a, a fabulous thing for him to add and and to understand. So yeah, I don't think there is a such thing as a perfect experiment, and one of the things that that I that probably every single time that you do an experiment or an observational experiment, controlled or observational, is you may answer one question, but it's going to bring up three or four more. So it's uh, that's that's just the nature of the game. The experiment went along. Although we answered like questions like how fast they uh, laid eggs and how fast like how fast they hatched, it still raised questions like what specific temperatures did they need, what kind of Nitrate, the ammonia levels that they need, and all that. And yep. Just like you said, answer one question, you get like a hundred more. Yeah, exactly. Why is there more in one tank well, and the other? And what could this affect on that? And yeah, yeah. Welcome to science. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You know, well, it's, it's good. All right, I think that's it here, Rob. Okay, so good. Thanks, thanks for uh, taking the time to do this podcast with us, and then we'll. Uh, do, do we have? Um, do we have any timeline on on when this one will be released? Um, it should be should be next week. Okay. All right. Cool. All right. We'll we'll, uh, we'll have to play that for the students. All right. Well, I wanted to take a minute and thank everybody for uh, for participating in the project. I hope you know it sounds like you guys learned a lot. And thanks to you know the the, the teachers and the schools for doing it and. Uh, uh, for Eric and the rest of the experts for participating. And Brian, I wanted to say that uh, I think you're doing a real good thing here, and uh, uh, I'm very proud to be a part of it. So I want to make sure you keep going on and make sure that Talking Reef supports it in, in any way possible. Okay. All right. All right. Thanks a lot, Rob. Thanks Bye. a lot. Bye. Thanks.